All right, good morning. This is KZYX's Mind Body Health Show. And my name is Casey Johnston. I'm a local pediatrician, and we are so fortunate to have on today a pre recorded show. Uh, Dr. Yoshi Katsura, who's a local orthopedic surgeon here in Willett. So welcome on the program. Thanks, Casey. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so we like to start off with just some general introductions. I think you've been on the show before, um, but just to reintroduce kind of how you got to your specialty and kind of what brought you here to Willits. Sure. So I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon and I did my medical training in Ireland and then my residency at the University of Tennessee. And then I spent some time at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City, where I did my specialty training. And I actually practiced in New York City after my fellowship. And I'm originally from California and always wanted to come back home and be closer to family. And I have a connection with Dr. Bowen and I actually spent a lot of time in Willits as a medical student. And so that's, we've always had this dream of practicing together in Willits and coming back to Willits was sort of the completion of that cycle. Can you uh, let listeners know, I mean, I'm sure most listeners actually have heard of Dr. Bowen, but a little just kind of overview of yeah, why he is um, just so incredible and does such service for our community. <laughs> so Dr. Bowen's been practicing orthopedics in the community probably for over 40 years. And I think that there are only a few families out there that have not been touched by his care. He's been so integral in providing orthopedic services to the community in Mendocino County. So I think a lot of people know him and have heard of him and he's, he's definitely been a big influence in my life as well. That's a pretty neat story just to be mentor to end up working with your mentor. That's pretty rare and special thing. Yeah, it was something that we, we had talked about for a long time and it definitely felt special to make it happen. And we practice out of the same office now. So and I was just waiting a little bit in your waiting room. And those, I have to say, are the most comfortable chairs I've ever been in a waiting room. I had nothing to do with those chairs, so. Are they special no. chairs for back, people with back concerns? I think, I think we'd have to ask Dr. Bowen. They've probably been here for a couple of decades, so. Yeah, those are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so before we go on, I just wanted to, uh, you know, highlight the book that you just published or that was just published that you wrote and actually drew, I think, all the illustrations. Um, and it's called The Spine Encyclopedia, Everything You Wanted to Know About Back and Neck Pain, But We're Too Afraid to Ask. Can you tell us a little bit about your inspiration to write the book and how it all came to be? Yeah, so I've always been really interested and passionate about patient education and trying to find a way to make a very complex subject matter something that anybody can understand and i i found myself trying to distill these concepts and complicated topics and trying to explain them in bite-sized ways that patients can understand in ways that i could deliver in in a short office session and oftentimes we don't have enough time to go in depth into some of these complicated topics. And so I found myself writing little articles that I could just hand to patients and give them in the office setting. 
and it would explain things in my own voice and explain things in a way that I thought patients could understand. And I've always been a visual learner. So I feel that art and diagrams are crucial to how we understand how things work. And so I put a lot of that into this book as well. And so basically I was writing these articles and I felt that I just needed more and more and more topics and more and more and more information. And people kept asking different questions and, you know, you'd want to spend an hour or two hours explaining something to them uh, that could be somewhat complex, but in a medical practice, we just don't have that time, as you know, you know, you're limited in the amount of time that you can spend with the patients. And so I found that this was a way that I could improve my patient education and give patients something that was reliable, that was not just scanning the internet and coming up with all sorts of things. Cause as, as I'm sure, you know, it's, there's a lot of misinformation out there and there's then a of, there's a lot of Dr. Google. <laughs> exactly. And I find that I, even I do it myself, you know, for certain conditions that I'm not familiar with all the first thing I'll do is go online and start trying to find information about things, but it's, it's so unlimited. And this was a way for me to provide curated information that I felt was one very honest. So you'll you'll see online, especially with regards to spine surgery, back pain, neck pain. There's a lot of gimmicks out there. There's a lot of devices. There's a lot of people trying to sell stuff, um, and it's hard to it's hard to f- siphon through which what's fact and what's fiction. And so this was a way to try to provide honest information about the realities of the spine, about how it works, and also the realities of spine surgery. Yeah, and I I really um, like how that is highlighted. I mean, I can't say I've read the whole book, but I did skip through it, and already you, I mean, um, the, the focus on a lot of the chapters is, yeah, what are the expectations of, um, yeah, surgery, treatment, um, you know, before and after surgery. And on, I want to mention your website too has videos discussing that, you know, what, how do you prepare for the, the appointment with your doctor, you know, with the orthopedic surgeon, just setting um, realistic expectations for things. And that is oftentimes missed when you just Google things. <laughs> yeah. I think most of my patients who've met me and people who come through the office would agree that I try to only use surgery when it's absolutely necessary. And every surgeon, every surgeon out there, whether he, he or she realizes it or not, is a, a risk and analysis, a risk analyst. And with surgery, what we try to do is figure out who's going to benefit from it. And once we decide that they will benefit from surgery, that surgery can actually have a meaningful impact on their condition then we try to look at what the risks are for surgery. So what those two things are totally independent. Whether the patient has could, could benefit from the surgery, we put that in one column. And then what are the risks of the surgery, put that in a separate column. So just because a patient can benefit from a surgery doesn't mean that it's necessarily a good idea for them if the risks are insurmountable. And so I... I try to use surgery only when it's absolutely necessary. It, it People often say, well, is it going to be an invasive surgery? Is this going to be, and I say, even a small thing in your spine is invasive. It's at the core of your body. By definition, it's invasive, even if it's just a small percutaneous, which means through the skin and uh, procedure. 
which I do perform, that wouldn't necessarily be a big open surgery, but it's still invasive. It's still going into the deepest parts of your body, into the most sensitive parts of your body. And so we try to use surgery very judiciously and setting expectations about what surgery do is very important because it cannot cure all forms of back pain. Yeah, and I definitely want to get into that throughout um, today's hour, but also kind of back to the book. I really like how it is set up each chapter you can read independently. Yeah. So you don't have to, you know, if you're having a back concern or you're there, it, this book is for physicians as well. It's a physician and patient guide. So you don't have to read the whole thing. You can, you know, look up a chapter. Some chapters are short, some are longer. There's pictures, there's exercises to do. It's very um, easy to read. <laughs> that was, that's, that was the, that's how I designed the book. That was the whole point. You wouldn't, it's called the spine encyclopedia and you wouldn't pick up an encyclopedia and start at A, or maybe you would, I don't know, and start reading through the entire encyclopedia. You would find a topic that you were interested in and you would open up, you would look into the index and figure out which volume that was in and you would go look at it and then you would read that chapter and then you put it back and then the encyclopedia would remain untouched until you were interested in another topic. And that's, as I was writing this book, that's how I wanted it to be structured. It's, it's a very long, dense book, as you can tell. And to read it from front to back, I think would be very beneficial to your knowledge of spine health, but it's not required. And I think most patients that would be somewhat overwhelming. So each chapter is designed to be uh, taken in and of itself. You don't have to read the other chapters. You can just read that chapter and you should be able to at least grasp the topic with a good amount of clarity. And uh, each chapter in and of itself does not need to be read in, in its entirety either. So you, you can just read the introduction and the conclusions and the frequently asked questions and probably get 80% of what you need to know rather than reading through the whole chapter. So really you can pick and choose what you want to read in the book. And for myself and the way I digest information, I think bite-sized is really good. So you don't want to be, you don't want to have to be overwhelmed by the subject matter. You want to be able to take it in bite sizes. And then repetition is also really good. So if you read the introduction and then read the body, and then the conclusions, you'll have a lot of repetition through there that will try to hammer home the, the main topics. And I also put put case examples because no, no writing is interesting without a story. So everything in the book is trying to be not only informative, but also entertaining. <laughs> that is, yes, definitely appreciated. Uh, so again, this is Dr. Katsura, orthopedic surgeon in Willits, and we're talking about his his book that was just published, The Spine Encyclopedia. And we also mentioned your website. Um, when did you start your website and writing the book? And how, how can people look up your website? What's the... Yeah, so my website is just my last name, Katsura, K-A-T-S-U-U-R-A-M-D.com. And this was another way for me to connect with my patients and for patients to connect with me and try to make information about finding me a little bit easier on the internet, but also a way for me to provide educational resources to my patients in a way that was really easy. So we, we have been putting up some educational videos on there and things that patients can go and learn more about their spine. And again, yeah, highlighting the part where you're, you go through, you know, what you should think about before your appointment with an orthopedic surgeon. Like, I think all doctors... <laughs> 
and providers would uh that would be a good thing to do because then that 15 minutes 30 minutes you have you know with the doctor and the patient are more meaningful yeah that's that's a really good point and that that goes back to my thought process about the interaction with the patient and what most patients don't realize is that a lot of effort goes into seeing a single patient behind the scenes and so if you're seeing a patient in the clinic you've never met them before you really don't know their story at all but sometimes patients have this expectation that you're already intimately connected to them which is not the case and so I like to try to get my patients as focused as possible on what they want to accomplish through their visit and what areas are of concern. And so if they have a specific diagnosis that they want to discuss, that needs to be brought to the doctor's attention immediately, instead of going about this round, the circuitous way of looking at various aches and pains throughout the body, you have to realize that a surgeon is is designed to treat a certain specific focused problem and they can offer surgery and treatments based on focused problems. And so you have to be focused yourself as a patient for what you want to get accomplished during your visit. And so that's, that's, that just goes back to doing your homework. I think before, before the visit, try to lay out what problems you want to have addressed and try to make it as clear as possible and try to make it as easy as possible for your doctor to understand what those problems are. And even in some scenarios, bringing in all your medications that you're on. I don't know so much in the orthopedic clinic, but in you know primary care, that's important. Definitely. <laughs> bring your actual medication bottles in. Yeah. And what doctors, doctors have to do is synthesize this vast amount of information in a short amount of time. And so from my perspective as the orthopedic surgeon, that means reviewing this very long, sometimes extensive list of previous medical encounters that they've had with other physicians just to try to get an idea of where this patient is in their life today. But not only that, now that medical imaging is so robust, we have sometimes decades of medical images to review. And I can actually look at MRIs decades in the past and see how a patient's problem has has progressed over the years. And sometimes that can be very interesting, but it also is a very, um, very time consuming. So not only were we looking through the electronic medical record, but also through all the images, all the lab resorts, uh, and it's just a lot of information to synthesize in a single, in a single visit. And going back to what you were saying about, you know, making um, a decision about surgery or intervention, uh, interventions like that, um, you know, weighing the benefits and the risks. So, you know, in that is is really important that the patient verbalize and they're asked about like what is important in their life for their quality of life. Like, do they maybe gardening is their passion, or riding a bicycle, or <laughs> you know, or being able to pick up their grandkid, or um, and so that seems really important for that to come across in making these. Uh, intervention decisions. Absolutely. And that's one thing I ask all my patients is what are their goals and what do they hope to get out of their visit? And then if they're going for surgery, I ask the same question. What, what do you expect to get out of this procedure? And I think a lot of disconnect occurs between physician and patient when there's differences in what the expectation are, because a surgeon may expect certain results, but the patient may have different expectations. And so being very open and communicative about those, those differences is, is, is really important in, in clinical medicine. So definitely when you're speaking with your surgeon, it's important to express what, 
what your hopes are, what kind of activities you want to be doing, what you want to get back to. Because a lot of my patients, even after having surgery, may not be able to get back to a life with a lot of manual labor. So I have definitely a lot of laborers in my clinic who come in and they want to get back to you know, a job in construction or a very physically demanding job. It may not be possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a few uh, weeks or maybe a couple months ago, actually, I had um, Dr. Lasich, who's a, um, a specialist in pain management and, and other areas as well. And she was just talking about that as well. Um, you know, there's kind of a morning sometimes that has to happen with your your expectations of getting back to full everything, you know, um, and sometimes you got to just let that go and focus on what is important. <laughs> Yeah, my typical goals for surgery, one of my main goals is to get patients back into a pain-free state. So patients come in and they've had chronic problems that have caused them basically to lose function. A lot of it is related to pain. When they move, they have pain. When they do certain activities, they have pain. And so surgery is very powerful in in certain situations in eliminating pain. Mm -hmm. And so my goal with patients are primarily to get them back into a pain-free state and then keep them there. And sometimes that means activity modification. This is kind of a a broad question. Um, Well, actually, let me first reintroduce you. This is Dr. Katsura, orthopedic surgeon up in Willits, and we're talking about the spine. Just kind of broadly, what are, you know, back conditions that generally do not require surgery? Um, Because I think a lot of times there's this perception that surgery will fix a lot of the above. Um, and what are kind of what are conditions that maybe not always, but maybe a surgical? That's a great that's a great question, and it's definitely something that I deal with every day in my clinic. And another reason why I wrote the book was to help educate patients on back pain because it's really frightening when it occurs to you. And I don't know if you've ever thrown your back out or had an issue with your back, but I have personally, and. It's dramatic when it happens because your back is so important to basically every motion that you do. So when you throw it out, it's incapacitating and it can be excruciating. And if you add any sort of neurologic insult, it can be even more frightening. So patients have this high level of anxiety regarding their back, appropriately so. But that having been said, the majority of conditions are benign. They don't require surgical treatment. Most back conditions will not benefit from surgery. Only a certain percentage of them will. And they tend to be the most severe and disabling conditions. But if you throw out your back, usually it's a form of strain and with conservative care and rehabilitation, it will pass with uh, with amount of time. And so what I spend a lot of time trying to instruct my patients on it are are techniques to help maintain their back and also to to shorten that that acute flare the acute phase of the the pain that they're experiencing and so within the conservative care what does that look like what does that mean like stretching any medications creams what is that so it i to me what conservative care means is everything shy of surgery so it, it involves therapy massage, seeing a chiropractor, oral medications, even sometimes injections, basically anything that doesn't involve physically going in to have surgery. And actually the conservative care for back issues is somewhat complicated. 
And one of the one of the challenges I think of dealing with back pain in a conservative way is especially in a rural community such as the one that we we live in is we don't have there are only so many therapists there are only so many facilities they tend to be very saturated with patients and so what i try to do is educate my patients instead because if they have at least a certain body of knowledge they can learn how to treat their own problems and part of the book focuses on techniques that you can use at home and are not complicated that you can self-administer to treat your back pain and it is somewhat complex because the back is a really a really elegant and complex structure to rehabilitate it takes a certain amount of knowledge and that's part of what we try to do in the clinic is is give patients at least some basic idea of how to do that and some of it just starts with activity so mm -hmm. if you throw your back out the old the old method of treating that was to go lie in bed for a week it was called bed rest and we know that that's a terrible thing to do. You actually become more debilitated, your muscles lose the strength and flexibility, the more the longer you spend in bed and you atrophy and can be very deleterious to your back pain. So we don't offer that anymore. One of the simplest things that we tell patients to do is assuming that there's nothing catastrophic going on, which we usually rule out in the clinic, is to stay mobile, stay active, try to do gentle exercises such as walking. Walking is actually one of the prototypical back exercises because it doesn't put a lot of strain on your back. Your back is actually designed to be in a neutral position during walking and you, you don't actually put a lot of force through your back or a lot of strain. And so it's a really good thing for patients to do. What about swimming, which um, is also very challenging for people to access a pool around here, but I hear that a lot. Oh, go, go in the pool, go swimming, because it's not you know, weight bearing as much. I think that depends on what type of swimming you're doing. Obviously, if you're doing an aggressive stroke, such as butterfly, that puts a lot of strain on your back because you're, you're undulating, basically. And I find that a lot of strokes actually put a lot of strain on the neck, too, such as a freestyle stroke. And that that can aggravate back problems but what i do find very helpful especially for some of my uh, more elderly patients is recommending pool therapy mm -hmm. where it's not necessarily swimming you're just going into the water and you're moving in the water you're doing aerobics or you're doing walking back and forth that can be therapeutic for a number of reasons one the pressure of the water can help relieve arthritic joint pain and allow you to get cardiovascular exercise. So a lot of patients can't tolerate going hiking or can't tolerate riding a bicycle because they have too much pain. There's too much load on the joints. And so what the water does is give you a little bit of barometric pressure, takes the pain away from the joints, and then allows you to move your body in an environment that does not require as much force because you have a little bit of anti-gravity because of the buoyancy. That can be very helpful. I know in Ukiah, there's a nice big gym with two pools, indoor, outdoor. Um, one, the indoor is warm and they do classes and everything. Are, do you know of any other like pools that people can access? There is a there is a center that I've heard a lot about, which is in Fort Bragg. It's the, the star. I think it's called the Star Center. Mm -hmm. But a lot of my patients rave about that place. OK, so people come from Willits to go over there. To, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Overall, it'd be awesome to have more pool access <laughs> yeah. in this county, in Mendocino County. I agree. Um, all right. So when should people get care for back pain? 
um, you know, if they're trying to manage on their own, like when is the time to see the primary care doctor? When's the you know time to see a, a specialist as yourself? When is it important to go to the emergency room? That's, that's, I know a lot of questions that's, back into that. That's a great question. And I think I would start by uh, saying one of the concerns that patients have is, do I need to have surgery for my back? And so I dedicate a whole chapter in the book to whether or not you need to have surgery or what things you have, you would need to have surgery for. And the problem is that you won't necessarily know whether or not you need to have surgery until you've spoken with a surgeon. I think a lot of patients have fear about coming to see a surgeon because they're going to offer surgery, which usually is not the case. I, I would say 99% of the patients that come into my clinic, I don't offer surgery to. And instead we try to find a way to improve their pain with exercise with other therapies that may be less invasive. So that's the first thing is you won't know whether or not you need to have surgery until a surgeon says you need to have surgery because as all the as the medical field has diversified and patients have different doctors that they see, the training is completely different from doctor to doctor. And so only surgeons I feel are able to say, okay, yes, you're gonna to need to have surgery. However, that having been said, um, Obviously, the, the gateway to medical care is through the primary care physician. And primary care physicians are very well trained in looking for what we call red flags. And those are instances where there's concern and that patient would need to be elevated to the care of a surgeon or transferred to the care of a surgeon. And things that I typically look out for are any sort of neurologic disturbance. So if a patient suddenly has increased weakness in the arm or leg, if there is new numbness, those, those things can indicate that there is some kind of problem going on within the spinal canal itself. And those are usually concerning findings. Anything to do with bowel or bladder. So if you're suddenly losing control of your bowel and bladder, that can also be concerning and can indicate compression of the neural structures. One of the things that I find that patients and physicians often uh, ignore or balance issues and just increasing clumsiness with their bodies and hands. And obviously there are a lot of different causes for those types of things, but most, some patients I've found say, well, I just feel like I'm getting old and that's why I'm dropping things or that's why I'm becoming clumsier. My balance is off. I'm just getting old. That's natural. And in some instances that may be true, but what I found is that sometimes that can be instead caused by spinal cord compression and a condition known as cervical myelopathy. And we see that a lot. A patient's coming in, they're just, they don't know what's wrong. Their bodies are not working like they used to, and they're increasingly clumsy and they're increasingly prone to falls. And the first thing I say is, has your neck been checked? Because often what we see is that they have severe spinal cord compression and that's a treatable condition. And so once you alleviate that compression on the spinal cord, some of the symptoms have the potential to improve. So that's one thing that I always look out for is uh, loss of manual dexterity, clumsiness, balance issues. And then reasons to go straight to the ER. I mean, if there's say fever or extreme weight loss or uh, trauma, you know, obviously yeah. if it was a traumatic cause for the back, yeah. back pain, um, so I think things that would cause, I would instruct a patient to go immediately to the emergency room for extreme pain. Um, sometimes that can be just due to a strain, but extreme pain that's not improving is, is something that we would get concerned about. Pain is a way of your body telling you something is wrong. 
And unfortunately, we don't always know whether or not it's serious or not. As I explained before, a lot of people can have extreme pain with just simple strains of their back that are benign that will get better with conservative care. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's always a judgment call whether or not you need to go to the emergency room and go sit in the waiting room and then wait for an emergency room physician to see you. It's, it's something that we always try to avoid. And so if, if possible, I would say communicating with your primary care physician is, the, is always a, a good place to start. But again, neurologic any kind of neurologic disturbance, new numbness, uh, new weakness in particular, bowel and bladder incontinence would be things that I would recommend going straight to the emergency room okay. for. Fevers, chills, things like that combined with back pain can be a sign of infection in the back. And that would be something that we would also recommend going to the emergency room for. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you brought up like communicating with the primary care doctor because, you know, all primary care clinics have, you know, either a nurse available or maybe even the doctor available to talk to during, you know, when the, when the clinics open and then they all have, um, after hour nurse, nurse lines, and then insurances all have nurse lines too, to call. And they're very, you know, they have, uh, protocols that, you know, all those things that you just listed, they would lead you to the right, <laughs> right plan. Um, so I'm going to, pivot a little bit and so in talking about surgery what are what are some things such as lifestyle or diet or smoking things like that that can you know increase those risks going into surgery you know kind of and it can actually increase it so much that it may not it may overwhelm the benefits so that's a great question so risk factors that increase the risk of a poor outcome after surgery there a lot of new research on this as we try to optimize patient outcomes and make sure that surgery is as safe as possible. This has been extensively studied. And one of the most common risk factors that's quote, that's quote unquote modifiable, meaning that you can make a behavioral change and actually improve your outcome is smoking. So smoking is deleterious, not only to the health of your spine, but increases the risks of surgery should you need it and there's a lot of reasons for that but the main the main culprit is is probably nicotine that's contained in tobacco mm-hmm. so so vaping would be included in this then. absolutely yes. yeah okay. so i've definitely had had that conversation with several patients about vaping and it's just about knowing what the what the components are that are harmful and the nicotine itself is harmful for a lot of reasons nicotine causes constriction of your blood vessels it prevents good circulation and so your tissues can't heal as fast when you're smoking it just takes longer to heal so that means longer to heal surgical wounds and also increased risk of infection because you can't get blood to the area mm-hmm. to to keep things healing in an appropriate fashion but nicotine is also harmful to the spine itself so one of the proven factors that can increase your risk of degenerative disc disease is smoking. And I think a lot of people don't realize that they think, well, smoking's bad for my lungs. Smoking can cause cancer, but they don't realize that smoking has a direct impact on their spine health as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I've had a lot of patients be surprised by that, but it actually accelerates your disc degeneration. It accelerates your osteoporosis, which means your the base strength of your spine, the strength of the bones those two things decline rapidly while, uh, while, if you smoke. And so not smoking can actually help ease back pain and can improve the strength of your bones, which is really important for spine health. So if you stop smoking, can that 
I mean, can you regain some, <laughs> some by doing that? Like, or is it just kind of like you've smoked for 10 years or 20 years and there's no, there's not going to be a difference if you stop. <laughs> I, I think that's a really interesting question. I don't know that I have the, the scientific answer to that, but anecdotally, I would say that yes, there is a chance for tissues. Your, your body has this amazing capacity to regenerate if you, if you allow it to do so. Uh, I don't think that it's been proven scientifically, but definitely lifestyle modifications, I would say are really important, not only to prevent the further progression of decline. So if you do have degenerative disc disease or osteoporosis, which is a condition where the bones become very frail, um, you wanna at least stop that from getting worse. And so you don't continue down this pathway towards excruciating chronic pain. But I think the body does have the capacity to regenerate. And if you make lifestyle changes, you can improve your overall outlook. And removing the nicotine circulating would improve all uh, healing in general, right? Like Absolutely. If you had surgery or non-surgery, if you just, you know, wound healing, everything, like, you know. Yeah, it has, it has, it's one of the most dramatic things that you can do to improve your overall health. So I, one of the things I focus with on my patients is, is stopping smoking. And I feel like I have this opportunity to intervene with my patients because they're, they may be going in for surgery or they may have, be having a very serious back problem. And despite whatever surgical interventions I have, if I get them to stop smoking, that's actually a more powerful, um, that's more powerful medicine than any surgery I have. Mm -hmm. So if I can get a patient to stop smoking, I consider that a success because I, I, I'm doing more for them than I could ever do with a surgical procedure. And then can you touch a little bit about other substances, um, methamphetamine? Alcohol? Yeah. So I certainly, certainly methamphetamine is a, a very scary substance and I see a lot of spine issues resulting from the use of methamphetamine. And a lot of it is similar to nicotine. Methamphetamine is a stimulant similar to how nicotine is. It similarly deprives the body of good blood flow and causes a lot of other issues. And one of the main things it does is cause you to ignore problems within your body. So you can start to have these problems and if you're using meth, you ignore them and they turn into much larger problems. And so we see that pretty commonly, but certainly it accelerates degenerative disc disease, meaning that the discs that are between your two vertebra that act as the cushion support and a lot of flexibility for your back wear out much faster than they would otherwise. It's basically like putting your body in the acceleration mode and not letting up on the button. So if you're revving the engine in your car, it's like holding down the gas pedal and not letting up until all the gasoline and the engine and everything is bone dry. And so it, it is a very destructive substance for sure. This is KZYX Mind Body Health. This is Dr. Katsura, who's an orthopedic surgeon in Willits. And I'm Casey Johnston, a local pediatrician. We're talking about spine health. And we are talking about risk factors going into surgery, but also risk factors in general that lead to more rapid decline, <clears throat> excuse me, in um, in multiple, you know, in different spine spinal conditions. So we haven't touched on uh, obesity. <laughs> so how, you know, there's risk factors going into surgery with that, but also um, it very much affects our spine health for many reasons. <laughs> Definitely. And it's a really important topic and one that I do spend a considerable amount of time trying to educate patients on. And I devote an entire chapter in the book towards how to manage obesity. I think that it's important for several reasons. And the way that I describe it to patients are 
that your spine is a very delicate structure and humans evolved to be upright over a long period of time, but that process was not totally foolproof. And so your entire torso, the entire weight of your torso, that means your stomach, your chest, your shoulders, arms, and head rest on the small disc about the size of a top of a soda can called your L5 S1 disc. And your entire weight rests on that. And it's, you know, imagine putting a ton of force on a very small area. Obviously that there's a lot of demand biomechanically that goes through that area. And so the simplest way to understand it is that everything is resting on this small point. If you have a lot of weight resting on that point, it's going to wear out faster, just like any machine would. And that's, that's the simplest explanation I can offer people is that if you decrease the amount of weight that's going through that small disc, you decrease the chance of it wearing out faster. So it has a preventative capacity. Obviously, the more you weigh, the faster, the more weight you're going to put on your discs and the faster they're going to wear out. I think that's something that most people could probably comprehend, but it also makes surgery riskier. And so if you develop a problem in your spine that does require surgery, it, obesity makes surgery riskier for a number of reasons. Number one is that it's more difficult to perform the surgery, retracting the tissues, getting to where you need to be, and actually performing the surgery is much more complicated. And the general anesthesia too. Yeah, yeah not, not even to mention the general anesthesia. Uh, if you have, one of the things that we learned in COVID was that obesity, obese people had a much higher rate of mortality. And a lot of that came down to when someone was on a ventilator, which is a device that provides breathing support when your lungs are not working properly, they had much higher rates of difficulty getting that oxygen into their bodies because their bodies were not as responsive to the ventilator. And so that resulted in increased mortality. So anesthesia risks are much higher in the, in the obese patient. Definitely. So another, oh, I, actually, I want you to bring up the book that you recommend. I know when you came to um, MCHC, Mendocino Community Health Clinics, once where you spoke at one of our meetings, you mentioned a book that you have found helpful for patients regarding um, nutrition and exercise and getting healthier in those ways. Yeah, so that's that's a book that's called Eat to Live. And I think it's been out for a couple of decades now. And it's a very effective means of losing of, of, of weight loss. And it, I actually write about it a little bit in my book because I've been so impressed with this book and I've recommended it to a lot of my patients. But the problem is, is that it, it is somewhat long and it is somewhat complicated. So what I try to do is actually make it into a bullet point form that you can just read very quickly and get the main concepts of the book. But the book itself is definitely worth reading. It's called Eat to Live and it's uh, basically a, a, a means of losing weight. It's just some general um, principles. I think I remember from it is, you know, just avoiding packaged processed foods. It's a simple, you know, it doesn't have to, some, some of these books and advice um, articles are overly complex regarding yeah. nutrition. Yeah. And I like in your book, you said, I think you quoted um, uh, Paulin, is that his name? Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, about, Michael Pollan. Yeah, Michael Pollan. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if your grandmother, great grandmother doesn't recognize it as food, you probably should not be eating it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's, I think that's probably one of the main points about diet and nutrition is it's not how much you eat, it's what you eat. Mm -hmm. And so making the decision 
counting calories, all that stuff, it gets to be very difficult and challenging for people who live busy lives. And every time you sit down to eat a meal, you're not going to take out a calculator and start adding up all the calories that you're eating and then try to eat a certain amount of calories. It's just not, or measure it with like, you know, or exactly like cups and I, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Bring out a scale and measure your food. It it just too, it's too complicated. What's a lot simpler is instead deciding, okay, I'm only going to eat certain types of food. And the heavy hitters in weight loss are carbohydrates and fat. And so, uh, if you consume a high level of carbohydrates and or fat that turns straight into fat it depends on the types of carbohydrates though and fats a little bit <laughs> yes there, there, i think that there are there are some nuances there mm-hmm, but, but in general yeah. carbohydrates in general we, we would i would call refined yeah yeah okay. refined grains or refined sugar mm-hmm. so anything like pasta white bread, candy, sugar, that sort of thing, those mm. things are immediately converted into fat in your in your body. And mm. so avoiding them is a really powerful way to lose weight. And instead focusing on food groups like plants, vegetables, fruits, and beans basically are, are not as easily converted into fat in your metabolism. And so that's, that's a very powerful way to, to lose weight. That's the simplest way to look at it, I think. Mm-hmm. So this is KZYX Mind Body Health Program, and my name is Casey Johnston. I'm a local pediatrician, and we're lucky to have on Dr. Katsura, who's a local orthopedic surgeon, and we're talking about spine health. Um, so I want to get into a little bit about uh, posture, because I'm finding almost with every patient in the pediatric clinic, even down to toddlers, I'm talking about posture, because yeah. um, just so many, including myself, I'm working on it too. <laughs> Um, so many kids now are just kind of slouched over like a bag of bones kind of, yes. um, and so many reasons why it's important. Of course, muscular skeletal, um, but also just breathing too. When you're hunched over, you can't get, you know, fill your lungs up. You're only using the top half of your lungs really. Yeah. Um, so how, um, is posture throughout the lifespan important? I think we could we could probably spend a whole a whole hour just talking about about that but that's a really it's a great question it's one thing that I'm really especially in educating my patients about so I think the the most important thing to understand is that your spine on its own is not capable of absorbing much weight or force so if you strip down all the tissues and you just have a spine with discs it is very, it's a very floppy thing. It's not going to independently hold anything up and it could bend and break very easily. What it, what it is really is a suspension bridge. And if you look at the Golden Gate Bridge, you see that the pillars and you see the wires hanging down and holding the, the, the road up. So the road itself is probably pretty floppy if you, mm-hmm. if you let it go, but you have all these struts holding up the road and we can think the road of the road is basically the spine. Mm-hmm. And all the struts are your muscles around the road and the muscles are what give your spine strength. And when we're talking about the, the lumbar spine or the thoracic spine, those muscles are the core muscles. Those are the abdominal muscles, the obliques and the paraspinal muscles, which are in your back. And those, those are the muscles that generate posture. So if you are allowing your body to totally collapse, if you slouch in a chair, I'm kind of slouching right now Me and I'm, I'm going to correct <laughs> myself, but if you allow yourself to totally collapse, that means that your muscles are not active 
it means that all the weight is going into your skeleton, into the, the vertebra and to the discs. And they're not meant to do that. Mm-hmm. They degenerate faster if you allow that to happen. And so one of the things I spend a lot of time talking to my patients about is activating the core muscles. It's not something that happens automatically because it actually is fatiguing to do. Sitting is actually a fatiguing if you do it properly, it should be fatiguing. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens is we sit down, we pull out our cell phones, we slouch, and we we try to take all muscular tension out of our bodies because that's what's comfortable. Mm-hmm. When we use our muscles, they get tired. They generate lactic acid. It's it's, and so when we get home from work or whatever, we we sit down, we slouch, we try to just totally disengage our bodies and go into this posture that's allowing our our spine to uncoil in a way that's not very healthy mm-hmm. and i think that that over time is very damaging to the spine and and, and more so you're you're ingrating this motor behavior that is is not good and when you're sitting you should have your core activated to some degree which means that you're sitting up in a good posture your muscles are tight around your abdomen and that takes the load off your spine and when you're walking, you should do the same. Mm-hmm. Instead of being hunched over, looking down at your cell phone or looking at your feed, which I'm guilty of myself all the time, it, it, but it's keeping your spine in this abnormal, this abnormal posture. Instead, focusing on keeping your core active, keeping your body upright and erect, and keeping the, the spine in a neutral position is the healthiest way to do that. And kids do this naturally. They lose, they actually, they they come out and they have perfect posture. Yeah, toddlers are yeah, the best. Exactly. <laughs> like one and two year olds have the best posture. <laughs> they have the kids do this naturally. They have they have perfect. They're, everyone's born with perfect posture, and then we lose it for behavioral reasons. It's just you you see other people doing this. You see other people sitting a certain way, and you learn it from a very young age. And so, definitely trying to keep kids um, more aware of their posture, I think, is important. One caveat to that is I, I have some families that, that come and say, well, my, my son has this bad posture. We fix his posture, but it could be due to a skeletal abnormality. It's a very good point. <laughs> scoli- such as scoliosis or kyphosis. And in those cases, you can't, you can't correct it. You can tell them to be as straight as possible and they, they can't do it because their skeleton won't allow them to do it. Um, but anyway, it's a very, it's a very important thing. I think it's really important for spine health. And another thing that I would mention is that keeping your back or your spine in one position for a prolonged period of time is also unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And so the discs themselves in the spine get their nutrition, get their blood flow in a way that's different from other tissues. They, they don't necessarily have a lot of arteries going into the area, feeding them with nutrition and pumping blood in, they get nutrition through what's called diffusion, meaning that food, food molecule or, you know, um, sugar molecules or whatever is going into the metabolism diffuse in, they dissolve into these structures. And so movement is actually a really important component of maintaining that metabolism and making sure that those structures are well-fed and healthy and are not deprived of oxygen and not deprived of resources. Yeah. And and one thing to note too, another important reason why it's so important for kids to have good posture from an early age is that kind of you, if you don't use it, you lose it kind of thing. Like when I'm seeing five, six year olds in clinic already slouched, not engaging their core muscles, they're, you know, those muscles are just becoming atrophied and over time, basically. 
So it becomes harder and harder to re-engage those muscles and to strengthen them, especially when kids may not be in sports or regular activities. So posture is kind of a default, like very important it's, exercise. <laughs> what's, what's interesting is that the human body is designed to take a lot of abuse. And so you can go through your childhood, your adolescence, even as a young adult with a lot of bad, so-called bad postural behaviors. Mm. You can lift with improper technique. You can throw with improper technique. You can get away with putting a lot of strain on your tissues as a child and as a young adult because you're you have this amazing capacity to heal and your tissues are so strong that they can take all the abuse but you know my clinic i see patients from very young age all the way through to being very elderly and at some point you lose that tolerance you lose that capacity to do things in a way that's not damaging to your body so you're really ingraining these behaviors from a young age you're not learning to lift properly you're not learning how to carry yourself properly and they don't bother you until you get to be later in your 50s and 60s sometimes even 70s but you learn these behaviors they become ingrained and then you never even think about it you take your body for granted until it becomes a problem so one of the things that i say in my book is that <laughs> the spine is a beautiful thing until you lose it or something goes wrong mm-hmm. and then you're totally down you're miserable and I think having a little bit of prophylactic behavioral changes is really important. Uh, spending a little bit of time taking care of your back every day is really important. Being mindful of what you're asking your body to do. So if you're going to lift something up, if you're putting in a new deck and you're going to go lift that 60 pound bag of concrete, think about how you're going to do it before actually doing it. And if you're in a rush or you're trying to move things fast, that's when injury occurs. Mm -hmm. If you're actively engaged and paying attention to what your body is doing and what your body is feeling and what you're asking your body to do, and you just spend a little bit of time saying, okay, if I bend over completely through my back and try to pull this up with using my back, is is that a good way to do this? You may say, okay, that's not the best way to do this. Maybe I'm going to use my hips and my knees, which are better designed to take a heavy load and I'm going to keep my back straight while I lift this. That's a healthier way to do it. But most people can get away with it for a certain period of time. They, they can, they develop these behaviors. They can get away with it until the body says, okay, I've had enough. And then a disc ruptures or something else happens. And I I think it's really important to start when people are kids and just educate kids on how to, how their body works and what they can demand and expect out of their bodies because if you take care of it, it will last a very long time. And like a lot of other things, habits take practice. Like before it becomes a habit, it takes a lot of work. I mean, sometimes with kids in clinic, I talk about brushing your teeth or wearing a seatbelt. Like how many times did the parent have to remind you to do that before it becomes automatic? Maybe even years. Exactly. <laughs> and so the same goes with other parts of your health, including posture and spine health. Definitely. I think that everyone you're right everyone brushes their teeth but no one exercises their core like as a kid you're not taught i need to i need to exercise my core or that that's even an important concept maybe you know in college or as an adult and when you start going to the gym you may start to learn some of those concepts but it's not something that's taught to kids but we all know to brush our teeth that those are really important things to take care of the back is really no different um uh, the back is a 
is is very strong is very is capable of doing a lot of work but the tissues do wear out over time and then if you don't have good back hygiene you're going to get hurt so we talked uh, we've been talking about uh, childhood and then in later adulthood um along with still getting regular exercises tolerated you know being active not avoiding sitting laying down for prolonged periods of time what uh, nutrients, you know, such as calcium, vitamin D, should an elderly person consider taking? So that that also is a very complicated question that we could spend a lot of time discussing. <laughs> uh, but I think a lot of patients are interested in knowing about calcium. Mm-hmm. And, and do I need to be on calcium? Should I be taking calcium supplements? Uh, and there's a lot of misinformation online about that. There's, and it's impossible, honestly, to get a straight answer of whether or not you need to be taking calcium. And so this is something I've done a lot of research into. And I do describe, there's a whole chapter in the book about calcium and what you need to, how much calcium you need to take, et cetera. But the simple part of it is, is most of your calcium is obtained through your diet. You can take loads of calcium, but it most of it is not absorbed, which means you excrete it right out through your urination or through defecation. And, and so you can take calcium until the cows come home, but it's not go, it's not being absorbed going into your bones. Your body will only absorb a certain amount of calcium per day. Mm-hmm. And a lot of forms of calcium are not that we can buy in the form of tablets or pills are, are not easily absorbed. Mm-hmm. So they're usually combined with some other substance to make them more biologically available, meaning that your body can incorporate them and take them out of your digestive tract easier. But really eating food groups that are high in calcium is a much more efficient way to get calcium. And also you can get all the calcium you need through a well-balanced diet. You don't actually have to take calcium supplementation. The only time I recommend calcium supplementation is for patients who are not getting adequate nutrition. So if you're not having a well-rounded diet, you have a very, some, maybe you only eat a slice of bread for breakfast, or you, know, you just don't have that, that rich diet, mm-hmm. then calcium supplementation becomes meaningful and you can, it actually, cause your body needs it. Mm-hmm. So ideally it's through nutrition directly. Yeah. Like a lot it, of other nutrients. <laughs> like, like almost everything. I think that yeah. it, it, it's, it's, it's not something that we can solve with uh, pills, even with vitamin D uh, you can get it through your environment. You can get it through certain food groups and there are problems with taking it in a medicinal form. It's not as well absorbed. And, uh, and so, yeah, most things can get, you can get enough of through nutrition. So this is Mind Body Health and I'm Casey Johnston, local pediatrician. I'm here with Dr. Katsura, who's a local spine surgeon or orthopedic um, specialist in Willits. And we've been talking a lot of, uh, a lot of different topics and just wanted to plug his book again, the spine encyclopedia. Um, and he also has a website that has a lot of great educational videos and diagrams. And just want to highlight again, that you drew all these pictures. Yeah. <laughs> like a Leonardo da Vinci here. Um, Not which is quite. Awesome. Um, no, it's, um, it's, it's, it's amazing. I took a college class on medical illustration. So um, it's awesome. And so how do people get your book? Where do you find this book? Yeah, you can, you can order it. The only place it's available is on Amazon. So okay. you can either at, you can either order the print copy or an ebook. Um, and they're both on, they're on, they're both on Amazon. 
Awesome. Um, if we have one more minute, a short description on imaging. I know that's like, you know, a whole big topic, but yeah. just briefly, what do x-rays look at? MRI, CT? Yeah. Um, I think that's helpful. Okay. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that's something that's, that's very confusing for patients and even other physicians, I would say, who aren't uh, orthopedic surgeons, who aren't spine surgeons. And so there, there are several different, we call them modalities or different imaging techniques that, that we use to look at the spine. There's x-rays, there's CT scan, which stands for computer tomography, which is a complicated word. And there's MRI, which stands for magnetic resonance imaging. And so we use all of these independently and in combination, and they all look at different things. And so I have patients say, well, you have my MRI, why do I need to get an x-ray? Well, the answer to that is because they look at different things. X-rays are really good at looking at the overall bony structure. And if you want to get a quick snapshot of what the spine is doing, what the back is doing, what things look like, the X-ray provides the easiest way for a human brain to comprehend that. MRIs and CT scans are much more sophisticated forms of imaging, but there is imaging, it's information overload. And so when we look at it, it takes much more time to interpret a CT scan than it does an X-ray and same for an MRI, but they offer much more in-depth analysis of the different areas of the spine. So the MRI is really good at looking at inside the spinal canal and the soft tissues and actually looking at the spine, um, the spinal cord and the nerves themselves, which is obviously very applicable for a spine surgeon. And CT scans are really good at looking at the bones, but also look at the soft tissues to a certain degree. They all have certain strengths and weaknesses, and we use them for different, uh, we use them for different purposes, which is probably beyond the scope of this conversation. But we, we, I guess my point is that they all, have, they all serve a certain purpose. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That was an unfair question to answer in a minute. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Katsura. Um, we're our community is so lucky to have you and thank you for your service. Thank you so much for those kind words. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.